to welcome you all to this next 11-day retreat. <laughs> For many people in the year, a 10 or 11-day retreat is their great effort in practice. <laughs> and actually, a lot can be done. There are about 11 full days of practice left. So what I'd like to do tonight is to address an issue as if you are just coming for the retreat. You're beginning it anew. Because these last 10 or 11 days can have a tremendous power of refinement and strengthening in your practice. <clears throat> We've talked about the difference between the concepts of things and the basic realities. In the basic realities of experience, how there are certain factors of mind, mental qualities, some wholesome, some unwholesome, among these mental factors, there are five spiritual faculties, which we've also talked about. Faculties of confidence, of faith, of effort, of mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. <coughs> these five spiritual faculties play a very important role in the whole process of the spiritual journey. In the Abhidhamma, or Buddhist psychology, they're called the controlling faculties, or the governing faculties. Because when they're strong, when they're highly developed, they exercise a governing role in the mind. They're a protection in the mind from being overwhelmed by the power of defilements. They create an ease in terms of our spiritual practice. It's like learning to do anything. In the beginning, whenever we undertake a new discipline, there are difficulties with it. We're learning a sport or an art, to play an instrument. In the beginning, it's awkward. And there's a lot of problems and there's struggles, but as we develop the necessary proficiencies, then there's a certain ease that comes. And the practice and the playing become one. There's not the distinction. In exactly the same way, these five controlling faculties are the proficiencies which have to be developed in this journey of meditation. And when they're strong, they provide an ease or a comfort in the mind. Doesn't mean that it requires less work or less energy to proceed, but we're not fighting with the same, the same level of struggle in the mind. Tonight, what I'd like to talk about is how to strengthen 
how to sharpen these controlling faculties. The Buddha spoke of different ways in which these can be strengthened in our minds. The first of the ways of working to sharpen these faculties is by building our practice on the foundation of right understanding, a very fundamental aspect of right understanding, which is that we recollect, we see, we continually look at the fact that whatever arises is also passing away. And on one level, it's so obvious to us. We know that whatever arises passes away. But somehow to make that right understanding alive for us in each moment, so that we don't forget it, with any sensation, any thought, any feeling, any situation, whatever arises also passes away. What this accomplishes for us is a much greater sense of acceptance, of self-acceptance, of acceptance of situations. It's when we forget that whatever arises will also pass away, that we engage in a struggle. We get engaged in a struggle with what's happening in our body, what's happening in our minds, what's happening in the environment. So as you're sitting and you're working with pain, or unpleasant feelings, can there be that recollection, that foundation in the mind, this is not going to last. This has arisen, and because it's arisen, it will also pass. Can you even remember the disturbances of the first week? You know, those things which seemed unbearably oppressive. The person next to you breathing loudly or the horrible, unendurable pain, or not enough egg salad at tea. You know, whatever it is, these things which assume such a looming importance because we forget that whatever arises also passes. And now when we look back in the first weeks of practice, we don't even remember what they were. This is the first way of strengthening these spiritual faculties in the mind, basing it in this understanding. The second way of sharpening the controlling faculties has to do with bringing qualities of care, 
of meticulousness and of respect to the practice. Care, caring quality, meticulous quality, and respect. Respect for ourselves, respect for the practice. And these can be aroused when we reflect a little bit on actually the purpose of the meditation, what it is that we're doing and where it is leading. Now this teaching comes as clearly as anything else, most directly from the teachings of the Buddha. It is the essential practice, the essential meditation, which he taught from the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness. And this is in the Buddha's words. What he said was the purpose of it. There is this direct way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of Nibbana. That is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. And so why we're practicing, the purpose of our practice is for the overcoming of sorrow and suffering, the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the realization of Nibbana. When we have a vision of where the path is leading and we realize the preciousness, it's like this teaching of the Dharma is this very precious jewel, which brings us step by step to the end of suffering. We realize that it is not a trivial undertaking. We're working with the purification in the deepest ways of our minds. When we reflect on this, it engenders, it supports this quality of respect for what we're doing so that we don't treat it carelessly. You know, if we had some very precious, extremely precious object, we would treat it with care. That's what the practice demands, that we have the same respect for it. The quality of care and meticulousness means that we really observe carefully, moment to moment, that we're not careless in our observation. One point, there was a group of monks practicing in the forest, and they weren't making much progress. They were living in the forest and trying to do their practice, but they were not progressing very well. And the Buddha came to know 
of this group of monks, and he sort of looked at the situation with his eye of wisdom, and he saw that these monks were being very careful in their movements, very precipitous in their movements. They weren't paying, paying attention. So he went to them, and he encouraged them He encouraged them in the development of meticulous awareness. And he gave an example. He said, it says, if you have a jug of water or of oil and it's filled to the brim and you want to carry it from one place to another, and you want to carry it without spilling a drop, what kind of care would be needed to do that? That's how you must practice. So just imagine if the Buddha were addressing us now, sitting in this hall, and he would say, the way we must practice is with that level of caring attention. Now it's interesting, when you contemplate that image, there's a very delicate balance implied. On the one hand, there's a tremendous sense of care in each moment. And on the other hand, there's a sense of softness and ease. Because if we get too tight, too uptight in it, we strain too much, so then the least little jarring motion and the the water spills. And so it's finding that very delicate place out of respect for the practice, where we're being meticulous in the minor movements, in every movement. Slowing down is a tremendous help. If we're willing to slow down, we can begin to see many more details of what's actually happening. It's easier to go from the level of concept to the level of momentariness. When we're observing a a movement, and we're moving quickly, there's often the sense of my arm, my leg, my foot, my body. When we're doing it slowly and meticulously, It's easy to see the different sensations, the changing sensations. No body, no arm, no leg, no foot, no self. And so it brings us to the deepest levels of understanding. Just this one aspect of being very meticulous. What's important to realize is that This is more than just a nice idea. Somehow, the nice idea has to be translated into what we actually do. And we can do it, even though there may be many lapses, as (laughs) has probably become clear by now. But each time, if we hold this as something of value, 
Each time we're aware that we've lost that meticulousness, simply begin again. Have that commitment to the practice to continually begin again at that level. It's not only a care and meticulousness you know, in the way we move and the attention to our movements. It's also the care in relationship to others, to really pay attention to what we're doing in the context of other people. Just as a simple example, there can be a great care at maintaining a stillness in the hall. You know, and so, after sitting, as people leave, if people are still sitting, not to, you know, for those of you who, who are remaining, not to do things which are disturbing, not to do a lot of writing in the books or getting up you know, and coming back in and out, to take care with the whole environment, to take care with our relationships, that kind of sensitivity, all of this helps to sharpen the controlling faculties. It sharpens, it, it refines and makes more delicate our awareness. This care and respect and meticulousness leads to the third way of sharpening these spiritual faculties. And that is through the development of perseverance and continuity. Continuity of attention. In the same discourse, I can find it again. Buddha said that if we can practice continuously for seven days, he promises one of two things, either full enlightenment or the third stage of enlightenment. Okay, so you have 11 days. (laughs) All it takes is continuous attention. There's one story which must be told to you. You know, every tradition has its story. This is, this is the Vipassana story. It seems that after the Buddha's enlightenment, but some years afterwards, they had a council meeting uh, of 499 fully enlightened beings, all with the psychic powers, because they wanted to uh, recite and preserve the actual teachings of the Buddha. So this was the first gathering after his death to recite the suttas. So there were 499 of these fully enlightened beings, and they also invited Ananda, who had been his attendant. And Ananda had some special 
qualities which they wanted at the meeting, first he had been at all the discourses, and he had the power of perfect recall. His memory was very good. So they really wanted him, but they were pressuring Ananda. He, he had just reached this first stage of enlightenment. He wasn't yet an Arhant. And so these other Arhants were getting on his case, were saying, <laughs> you know, it's really not right. We're meeting in this conclave. You should really work hard. You know, try to come as, a, as an Arhant. <laughs> So it's the night before the meet, it's the night before this big conference. And Ananda is very inspired. And he's, okay, I'm going to do it. And so all night he was doing the walking meditation. You know, all night long, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. It's midnight, two, three, four, and nothing's happening. <laughs> but he was why, Ananda was quite. He had very wise, and he had listened to you know, all the teachings. So he kind of stopped for a moment and took stock. Okay, something's out of balance. And there's too much striving, too much effort. Need to tranquilize the mind a little bit. So he said, I'll just go and lie down and rest for a bit. So very mindfully, he went to his bed, noting every movement, any, every minor movement, He's lying down on the bed, and it's said that in the process of lying down, before his head hit the pillow and his feet touched the foot of the bed, in that very process of noting lying, 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 he became fully enlightened. All the psychic powers came spontaneously. And the story goes on to say that when the meeting, the meeting started, he appeared spontaneously at his seat through <laughs> his newfound magic powers, and everybody knew that Ananda had made it. <laughs> so this is the Vipassana story. Right? Every moment is important. Right? Every moment, every movement, whatever we're doing, can we bring that level of observation of attention that's the kind of continuity and perseverance. When we forget, we just start again, begin again. But don't give up on the effort to do it because it's difficult to do. It is difficult, and it takes a continual renewal. But it is that commitment to careful, meticulous, continuity. What happens when we do this, because of the continuity of our awareness, the defilements or kilesas of the mind do not have the same power to overwhelm the mind. To a large extent, they may not even arise. And if they do arise, if the mindfulness is sharp, we see them right at the beginning. We're not lost in them for a long time, allowing them to gather a lot of strength. We're aware of them just as they arise in the mind. And so we can maintain a greater sense of balance. So out of the continuity of attention, the defilements have less strength. Because of this, the mind becomes more peaceful. We get a taste of a genuine inner peace. 
sense of calm, a sense of tranquility. From this taste of peace within us, not peace dependent on any external situation, but actually arising within our own hearts because of this taste of peace, the spiritual faculty of confidence arises, strong faith arises, based on our own, our own experience of it. Because of the confidence that arises, we are inspired to make more effort, because we see what's possible. And so the effort factor gets stronger. With that upsurge of effort, mindfulness becomes more durable, more sustained. As mindfulness gets more sustained, concentration, the one-pointedness becomes stronger. All of this is a chain reaction from that simple effort at meticulous continuity. All of these spiritual faculties begin to get stronger. When these first four are stronger, by itself, wisdom and understanding comes. When the confidence is there and energy is there and mindfulness and concentration, from those, automatically wisdom or insight emerges. How to practice this continuity? How to make it strong? One way is to note carefully all the changes of posture. Every change from sitting to standing, to lying, to walking, every change of posture can be noted. Have you paid attention to just how complex a process it is to go from sitting position to standing? How many separate movements have to be made? Continuity means focusing on each separate movement, one at a time. Not rushing, not jumbling them all together. So our activities become very elegant. Because instead of a confused mass of movement, we're separating out the parts of it. It can be done slowly, it can be done gracefully. Being aware of the minor movements in the day. Now, how many times are there slight shifts of position, or turns of the head, or reachings of the arms? Can we drop down and note each one of those? Not with a sense of forcing, not with a sense of straining, not with a sense of obligation. You know, oh, I should be doing this. If, if I were a good yogi, I would really do this. That just creates more mental tension. But to see if it's possible to do it from a place of interest of care, of respect 
for the practice. And then there's a delight in it. It's as if we're seeing, it's as if we're taking delight in how careful we can be. This has tremendous consequence. It builds the power of these controlling faculties. So there's respect for the practice, there's the foundation of right understanding, there's meticulousness and care, there's perseverance and continuity. The next few ways of sharpening the controlling faculties have to do with certain conditions. And the Buddha talked about how important suitable conditions are for practice. Suitable conditions of food, of climate, of silence. But there are certain conditions which make it difficult for us. If we're having to battle with with these different elements, then it's difficult to concentrate the mind. One of the things to inspire our efforts is the understanding that the conditions here are extremely suitable. You know, the food is healthy and wonderful. The temperature range is <laughs> adequate. <laughs> There's a very nice story. Story. <laughs> I have to check to see if the story was told. There's a very nice story illustrating the importance of suitability of surroundings. Uh, once upon a time, there was a woman who was very devoted to practice. She hadn't, she hadn't had much instruction, but she had this inner, inner urge to practice. And she met some monks who were you know, practicing in the forest, and she went to them for teachings. She got the teachings, she began practicing at home. She was a lay person, lay woman, practicing at home. And she quickly reached to the higher stages of enlightenment and the different psychic powers that came. So then, sort of out of gratitude towards receiving the teachers, she cast her, her mind of wisdom towards this group of monks to see how they were doing. And she realized that these monks who had taught her, actually none of them were enlightened. You know, and she had gotten so far. And so then she inquired in her mind, okay, what's the problem? You know, they're practicing diligently, they're earnest, And she saw that uh, in the minds of this monk, there was was a uh, not a very great suitability of food. They weren't getting the right food that they needed. 
And so she undertook to provide for each of the monks just the kind of food that each one wanted. And she knew this through her, through her psychic vision. And so she did this act of dana you know, towards these monks, preparing just the right food. And then in a very short time, all these monks also became enlightened. So I don't know, I just like the story. <laughs> Care with speech and a respect for the silence has to do with the suitability of conditions. Talking is a tremendous energy leak and disturbance for the mind. It weakens the development of these controlling faculties. And so, to, to renew one's commitment to maintaining the environment of silence is extremely important. The balance of postures, right, to balance the sitting and the walking is important. The fifth way of strengthening the controlling faculties is something which is called the sign of samadhi. Samadhi means concentration. The sign of samadhi means that we pay attention to the conditions when the mindfulness and concentration and wisdom are strong. Now, in the course of practice, there are all these ups and downs, and sometimes they're really clear and, and concentrated sittings, and sometimes we feel very distracted or a lot of difficulties. Understanding the sign of samadhi means that we pay attention to what the conditions were when the concentration and mindfulness is strong. What is the quality of the effort? What is the quality of the acceptance in the mind? What's that quality of receptivity, of softness? And so we actually imprint that in the mind, that understanding, so that in times of struggle, in times of difficulty, we can recollect it. Say, so, oh yes, it takes that quality of effort, or that quality of meticulousness, or that quality of relaxing, so in this respect, a wise consideration or a wise reflection can be of tremendous help to us. There is the understanding that everything which arises passes away. That is the foundation of right view. There is respect for the practice, respect for ourselves. There is care and meticulousness. There's continuity and perseverance. There's suitability of conditions. There's the sign of samadhi. The sixth way of sharpening these governing faculties has to do with balancing the factors of enlightenment. When you know, we're progressing, 
just in the ordinary ups and downs of the journey, sometimes we get dejected or discouraged. You know, we feel low, low energy. So what we have to do at that time is strengthen the arousing factors of enlightenment, the factors of investigation, the factors of effort, the factors of rapture. We have to inspire ourselves. And certain recollections can do that. Recollections of the Buddha, of the purpose of the practice, of why we're doing this. Greater precision, greater meticulousness. All of that uplifts the mind, inspires the mind again. At other times, when things may be going quite well, we get excited. We get overexcited. Something is finally happening. You know? And this kind of overexcitement can lead to an excess of energy, too much restlessness. So at that time, we have to calm things down, strengthen those factors of enlightenment which are tranquilizing of calm and concentration and equanimity. One of the ways of balancing these factors of enlightenment is to understand that this Dharma practice of ours is an unfolding process. It's a natural unfolding. We have one job to do, which is to be mindful in each moment, to note in each moment what's happening. And if we do our jobs, the whole path unfolds for us. With that understanding, there's not that sense of rushing. There's not that sense of straining. It's like watching a flower grow. And the flower comes up and we water it and take care of it. But we don't tug on it to make it grow faster. (laughs) You know, we do that a lot in our practice. We're tugging it. Then these factors of enlightenment get out of balance. It's we do our part and then surrender. We're mindful, we pay attention, then surrender to the Dharma, surrender to what happens. Sometimes the factors of enlightenment get out of balance because we misinterpret what it is that's going on. Common, common problem. Because our minds are so evaluative, constantly analyzing and comparing and judging, misinterpretation happens a lot. Why is this? Because the path of practice is developmental. We can see what happens, for example, in the development development of a child. You know, it goes from an infant and then teething and then crawling, and then standing, and then walking. And at each of these stages, it's difficult. 
You know, when the, when the baby, when the baby's learning to stand or learning to walk, what happens? It keeps falling down. So it has to stand up again. As our practice goes from stage to stage, in the transition times, there's often that uncertainty. There's that difficulty. The mind gets irritated. It doesn't like what's happening because it's losing the security of the previous understanding. And there's a common tendency to hold on to what we already know, to what is familiar to us. Because in that transition times, there's that uncertainty. It's not familiar and it's difficult. We keep falling down or bumping into things. If it can be remembered that this is part of the practice, these transition times, times when the mind is irritated or having difficulty, it does not mean that the practice has gone back to day one. It means that there's a movement going on from something we know to something we don't know. And so to be patient with that, to allow that, to actually nourish that movement rather than to try to block it being attached to something that has passed. The seventh way of sharpening these controlling faculties has to do with understanding what heroic effort means. What is required of us is a very courageous effort. It's a heroic effort. We are sitting under the Bodhi tree and Mara is attacking with all the forces of desire and ill will and irritation and doubt and conceit and all the many things that, that Michelle talked about in the armies of Mara. Every time we sit, every time we walk throughout the day, this is what's happening. Can we have that quality of heroic effort that understands the purpose of what we're doing and really undertakes the practice with this tremendous commitment to paying attention, to being aware. What arouses this for us, what arouses this intensity for us, is understanding the very nature of this process of living, of life. Now, the realm of beings, of all beings, is the process of nama and rupa, the process of mental phenomena and physical phenomena, elements continually arising and passing away. From the moment of birth to the moment of death, it is this inexorable process of arising and vanishing beings coming into birth, growing old, 
decaying and dying. And there is no way to stop that process. That is the nature of it. Within this process of birth, decay, and death, there is no place to rest. We can say, okay, stop for a while. I'd like a little vacation from this. It's not like that. The nature of samsara is this continual arising and vanishing and changing of the elements proceeding along to death. If we see that clearly, then we have a very different relationship to these bodies, to our experiences, to objects. The Buddha said very clearly, and it's very obvious when we stop to look, that actually we cannot be said to own or possess anything. Because we are inevitably parted from whatever we have, whether it's our relationships, our possessions, our situations, the planet. And so when we see this, when we open to it, we stop trying to grasp so much, trying to hold on to things for a sense of well-being, for a sense of security. Because we see that it's like trying to scoop water out of a river with a butterfly net. You scoop and you scoop and you scoop and nothing stays in the net. It all falls through. So when we pay attention, we see the futility of that. There is one thing that the Buddha said could truly be called our own. And that is the actions we do and the fruits of those actions. But these, the actions which are the karma and the fruits of those actions are what follows us like a shadow. That is the law which governs the unfolding process. A very powerful example was used in the suttas. And the Buddha came to somebody and said, you know, friend, what would you do if you were living in a certain place and you were told from the north this mountain is advancing, crushing all beings in its path, and from the east and from the west and from the south, these mountains coming in, crushing all beings in its path. What would you do? How would you live? What is important? Understanding that the only thing which we can truly call our own in any meaningful sense is our actions and the fruit of actions. This person replied, the only thing that is valuable, inherently valuable to do, is to practice generosity with a loving heart, with a compassionate heart. To practice basic morality. 
the importance of that to develop wisdom, to develop understanding, to free the mind. This is what has enduring value. Reflecting on this can inspire the kind of heroic effort that's needed in our practice. It is not easy. You know, and you know that so well. That's why there should be a tremendous sense of respect for the undertaking that you're doing, self-respect. This most worthy of activities. last of the ways of working with developing the spiritual faculties is the quality of patience with pain. Pain is a part of our experience. It's often masked. We mask it in our lives. As we sit and we stop masking, it becomes a very prominent part of our practice at times. It requires great patience to be with it, to look at it, to penetrate. It's a chance to really explore what the nature of pain is about. We've talked a lot about this in the past, so I won't go into detail with the pain. The coming together of the controlling faculties of confidence, of effort, of mindfulness, of concentration, and of wisdom, this is the ripening of our spiritual path. And these faculties are developed and are strengthened through all of these ways. And so what I would like to encourage you to do in these last days of the practice, for now, you know, you've built this wonderful base of all of these faculties. They can be sharpened now. They can be refined. They can be brought to a greater degree of precision. See if you can work with some of these ways of strengthening them. These last 11 days are the dessert of the retreat. Enjoy it. Do you have any questions about any of this? The last 11 days, so the retreat ends on the 16th. So the last six days is is integration week, which is what? We'll talk about that in 11 days. There'll be a chance to just kind of 
start walking more normally. If you are actually being mindful in the times of difficulty, then nothing more need be done. Because that is what is to do. Recollecting the sign of samadhi really has to do with when we're in a situation and we're not being mindful. So then it's to recollect, okay, what, what was the mind like? Or what were the conditions? What were the qualities when the mindfulness was strong? You know, and yeah, often it's just recollecting. It's not that these are mysterious qualities. It's it's ones that are part of us, but for you know for different reasons at times we just forget. A, a simple example, you know. It does not take any level of spiritual expertise to be very meticulous in a movement. It simply takes remembering to do it. And it's within all our capacity. Just we move and we really see how carefully we can feel it. So at a time when we're not, when we're being more careless, when the mindfulness is not sharp, and we recollect, okay, what was it like when the mindfulness was very strong? Oh yes, there was that meticulousness. Let me see if I can bring that quality again. Or maybe it will be, you know, we're very restless and we're straining and there's this just sense of tightness in us. And then we recollect, okay, what was it like when the mind was really clear? Yeah, there was that quality of relaxing, softening. So it's all just a a reminding of things we already know. know? And so it becomes, at times, easier to begin again in that vein. But as I say, if, if at those times of difficulty you're actually able simply to be mindful of what's there, then that's fine and nothing more need be done. Balancing the factors of enlightenment, you mentioned that uh, when you're feeling slowed down, that um, you need um, investigation and effort and rapture to strengthen those. You can do things that are um, recall things that are inspiring or use recollection or meticulousness. But when you were excited, you needed calming. You said you could bring up the quality of the tranquility, calming, concentration, but you didn't give the method for doing it. Okay, just one correction in what you said. Uh, 
in the first group, it's not when you're slowed down that you need to uh, develop those arousing faculties. Uh, it's when there's a quality of discouragement, you know, or the mind is depressed in some way. That's when we need to elevate it through those, through those factors. Way of calming the mind or developing more concentration and equanimity is a lot of what talked about tonight. Um, Now, the recollection of that first, the first way I talked about, in terms of remembering that whatever arises is going to pass away, not to, not to recollect it in retrospect, but actually in the moment of the experience. And so that makes us less attached to when, when we get excited or over-enthusiastic. So that's a way of cooling out the mind a little bit. The precision is another way. Sometimes some, some other movement that you can play with is um, realizing that at times you need a zoom lens on the camera and at times you need a wide angle lens. Sometimes there's a lot of energy going on, or agitation, or excitement, and to get very precise seems impossible. At that time, if you open up your awareness to include the whole system, that can be a way of calming the mind, because you're accommodating all the energy, rather than trying to squeeze the energy into a very, a very narrow focus. One of, uh, one of the beauties of the practice is that all of this comes about through the continuity of mindfulness. There was, there was one story of a monk uh, in the time of the Buddha. He was, he was quite old. And he wanted to practice, but he thought that there were so many rules for the practice and so many things to remember that it would be hopeless. You know, that he couldn't, he couldn't even begin to remember all the rules. And so the Buddha said, can you remember one rule? He said, yes, he thought he could remember one. And the Buddha said, be mindful. And that's how much power it has. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.